week's episode of Ghost Emoji. I'm Taylor. I'm Becca. And it's fucking hot. <laughs> it's 107 degrees. We're all dying. So if there's some ACs and fans running in the background of this, we tried to take them out and post, but I'm so sorry. It's just too hot. Yeah, I don't, I can't, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I don't want to turn into a melted ghost. Mm-mm. No, no. Yuck. But this week's episode is um, not spicy and hot. It's It takes place in a snowy, scary, desolate mountain side. Mm-hmm. 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 God, I wish that was me. <laughs> no, you don't. Yes, anything but this. Please, help. Ugh. I mean, I guess not everybody who goes to this mountain gets dead, but some people do. Many. Many do. <laughs> several people. How many people is several? Enough to be worried. <laughs> we are talking about the Dyatlov Pass incident, which I don't know if it's super popular or not. I feel like it's relatively well known. I had heard about it before. Had you read anything about this one beforehand? No, I'd never heard of it until you were like, let's do this. And I was like, okay. So it's Freyish. Yeah, I don't know any other than I didn't read your notes. So all <gasps> of this will be a shock to me. <laughs> oh my god, well you're in, you're in for a treat, I guess. I literally like ate and then I laid down and read my book. And I was like, I'm, I'm just gonna ride the wave of surprise as I read. <laughs> well, okay, well hop on, on that wave. Get on your little paddleboard. I'm here to be the paranormal expert, and part of that is believing everything I fucking hear. Well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then I guess get ready, because uh, we're, we're going to former Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Okay. The Dyatlov Pass incident um, is in reference to the unsolved deaths of nine ski hikers in the Northern Ural Mountains uh, back in early February 1959, back uh, what's now Russia, what was at the time the Soviet Union. Um, it was a group that had been formed for a skiing expedition across the Northern Ural Mountains, and the leader of the group, who the pass was later named after, was uh, I, Igor, <laughs> Igor Dyatlov. And um, he was... <laughs> I'm Igor. Uh, he was a 23-year-old radio engineer student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, which is now called the Ural Federal University. And he had put together a group of other uh, of nine others for the trip, which was mostly fellow students and peers. I think there was three engineers and everybody else was students. Um, each member of the group, which consisted of eight men and two women, were very experienced hikers. They were grade two, which I am not a ski hiker, but it's, I guess, like the second highest you can have. Um, they'd all had ski tour experience, and once they went on this ski hike excursion thing, they were going to get their grade three certification because the route that they were going and that time of year would have been a category three, which is the most difficult. So... These are the names of all of the people who went on the thing, which later on, it doesn't come up as much since not everything is super detailed, like, as to what happened to each individual hiker, because I kind of got lost in the weeds. But just since a lot of these people are, spoiler alert, dead, 
I thought it would be nice to include their names. Before we get started, who, yeah. like, I'm not Russian, so I can't really speak on that, but, like, can you imagine looking into your beautiful new baby's eyes and being like, Igor? <laughs> That's your It's name. a family name. Igor Dyatlov. Igor. Well, I mean... I like that Dyatlov is very good, <laughs> but the Igor, I just... Well, I mean, it's... A different country. I'm sure it's probably more common over there. Of course, over here, when I hear Igor, I think of like, I haven't read Frankenstein, so I don't even actually know if that was his assistant or if that's just the typical scary movie mad scientist assistant being named Igor. I guess I think of Igor from uh, Young Frankenstein. Yeah, Young Frankenstein. God, I can't think. All right. (laughs) So continue with the names. I'm done with my piece. Uh, Sorry, I'll, I'll... All Igors, I guess. Probably not a whole lot, but just in case. There's Yuri Doroshenko, Lyudmila Dubinina, Yuri Kravonoshenko, Alexander Kolovtov, Zinaida Kolmogorova, Rustam Slobodin, Nikolai Thibaut Bernoles, Bernoles, Oh, Simeon, uh, Alexander, so I don't know if you went by Alexander or not, Zolotaryov, uh, Yuri Yudin was the last guy. So, sorry for butchering everyone's names, but I just thought it'd be, you know, since they did, I thought it would, it would be nice to at least get their actual names in here. Um, let's see, so, I got ten of them. And the group arrived by train at Ivdel in the early morning hours of January 25th, 1959. Uh, they took a truck to Vizai, which is like a lorry village that's kind of like the last stop that you would go in. It's like an inhabited settlement up in the north. And I thought this was a weird note, but I get it. They purchased and ate loaves of bread to keep their energy levels up for the following day's hike. So they were carbo-loading. That's not how that works. But, hey, these guys are experienced hikers. What do I know? Giant loaves of bread. <laughs> I feel like that would just make you so tired. Or you need all that energy, you know? Yes, but I feel like like protein and fat and stuff like that would be more, like, useful. I don't know, man. It's 1959. I mean, the, the <laughs> food pyramid is a fucking mess at this point, so... Well, our food pyramid was a mess. I don't know what other countries are going by. America's is just... Me and Mark were talking about Captain America the other day, as I do sometimes, and he was like, well, he gets like that by, you know, he follows the food pyramid, and I was like, no, he does not. Captain America just eats grilled chicken and broccoli and is miserable. Mm-hmm. That's all he eats. There's no joy. <laughs> I've seen his eyes. There's no joy in those eyes. Oh, he just- he No just bread. This is Bucky. No sugar. No Bucky. No Bucky. Uh, okay. So, we'll- it's in the wiki. They carbo-loaded, so it must be true. Good so. for them. Bread is good. I'm glad that that's, that was, like, one of their last meals was bread, because bread is life. On January 27th, they began their trek towards Mount Otorten, which was their ultimate destination they were trying to get to. Um, but on that next day, one of the members, another one of the Yuris, Yuri Yudin, who had been suffering from a couple of health ailments leading up to the trip... He had rheumatism, and he said he also had a congenital heart defect, which, good on him for getting to a level two or grade two or whatever, if he was having to deal with that. But he he got real sick, and so he had to 
turn back around because he was having a lot of really bad joint pain and his knee was bugging him. And that was the last time you ever saw him. He uh, turned around and left and the rest of the group was nine people kept going. Later in life, Yudin would claim that the one thing that had haunted him the most over the years was not being able to discover what kind of diabolical force stole the lives of his friends, a fate he would have shared were it not for his unexpected illness. According to Yudin, if I had a chance to ask God just one question, it would be, what really happened to my friends that night? Diaries and cameras found around their camp, their last campsite made it possible to track the group's route up into the day uh, preceding the incident. On January 31st, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing. The following day, February 1st, the hikers started to move through the pass, and it looked like they planned to travel through the pass and then make camp on the opposite side. But because the weather conditions got worse, like there were snowstorms and it decreased in visibility, they lost their direction and deviated west up towards the top of Kolatsiakl. Which means Dead Mountain. Oh, that's dark. Or Mountain of the Dead. <laughs> Mountain of the Dead. That's a great place to go. Although I guess they weren't trying to go there. Um, so when they realized their mistake, the group decided to stop, set up camp there on the, and set up camp there on the slope of the mountain, rather than moving almost a mile downhill to the forested area, which would have offered some shelter from the elements. It's suspected that, suspected that Dyatlov probably did not want to lose the altitude that they had gained, or he decided to practice camping on the mountain slope. It's one of those things where it's like, you know, if you go off the plan, don't go more off the plan. Like, don't be like, let's push it some more. Just be like, let's do the the most, like, we're already being outlandish here, being a little lost. Let's stick to what we know. That's my personal opinion. But I just, I feel like he was like, let's roll the dice again. <laughs> let's just practice. <sighs> let's just do this. It's fine. Let's practice. Oh, God. Before leaving, Dyatlov said he'd send a telegram to their sports club once they returned to Vizai. It was expected that this would happen no later than February 12th, but Dyatlov had told Yudin before he left the group that it would that it could take longer. So when the 12th passed and no messages had been received, there was no immediate reaction since delays were common with such expeditions, and he'd already warned him, like, it might be later. So... Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the relatives of the travelers demanded a rescue operation on February 20th that the head of the Institute sent the first rescue groups, consisting of volunteer students and teachers. And then later, the army and the militia forces, yeah, militia forces became involved with planes and helicopters being ordered to join the rescue operation. I didn't know if militia was like a, like Russian for militia. Maybe. Something similar. It's a cool yeah, word. got everybody involved. Everybody up on this mountain. <laughs> so, I guess it was February 26th. Jordan's birthday, holla. Whoa. Whoa, party time. Not really. <laughs> so, at this point, they were due back on the 12th. It has been almost two weeks since night. Everything went to shit. And that's when the... Search party came upon the group's abandoned and badly damaged tent uh, where they had left it on Kolat Siyakal. And they were really confused by it because the tent was like half torn down and it was covered with snow. Um, and it had also been cut open from the inside. Like the, I don't know if they had zippers or how they sealed it shut, but it was still 
shut the conventional way and it had been cut open from the inside, but none of the people were there. But they could see that all of the group's belongings and shoes and stuff like that had been left behind. They found eight or nine, I guess maybe there was some confusion if they overlapped or whatever, but there was eight or nine sets of footprints leading away from the campsite, but the footprints, there was only like sock prints or be a single shoe, and some of them even looked like barefoot footprints. So whatever had happened, they had left in a hurry. They led down towards the edge of the nearby woods, which I guess that's where they had talked about how maybe they should have camped there, but they didn't. And about 500 meters away, these tracks just stopped and were covered in snow. I know. Once they got into the forest, kind of along the, the outer edge, they found a large pine tree, and that's where they found the remains of a small fire and the first two bodies. And these bodies, they had no shoes on. They were dressed only in their underwear. Uh, the branches on the tree were broken up to about five meters high, which I think is about 15 feet. I'm not positive. Um, 10 to 15 feet, just with my brain math. So it looked like one of the skiers at least had tried to, like, climb up and look for something, maybe trying to get a view of the camp that they had run away from. This part was a little icky. Forensic tests later confirmed that there was traces of skin found embedded in the bark, indicating that either both of them or one of them had tried to climb up the tree so frantically that they had, like, had skin come off when the branches snapped. And that their hands were, like, real messed up. Masses of pulpy flesh. Yeah. That one. Woof. <laughs> yeah. Sick. So, that was the, the first two people that they found. And they were in, in bad shape. And again, really unusual that they would be underdressed as much as they were. Because the temperatures from the night that all of this happened... I think it was between February 1st and 2nd was the night where it happened. I mean, it was anywhere from like 10 to 20 degrees below freezing. So it was very, very strange. Um, between the pine and the camp, kind of almost like they looked like they were trying to go back to the tent, they found three more bodies. They said that they were about 300, 480, and 630 meters from the tree. So just tried to make it but looked like they had just frozen to death on their way back. Oh. And that was, I guess, the first five people, you know, they found about two weeks after. But it took them a long time to find the rest of them. They said that the remaining four travelers, they didn't find them for at least two more months. They said they were finally found on May 4th under about four meters of snow in a ravine about 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree. So they were the farthest away from the camp. Um, and that these four were dressed more appropriately, like they had more clothing on, but their clothes were mismatched or um, some of the clothing, like they thought maybe they had taken from the other people who had already died. So maybe they had been wearing clothes and they took them off when they realized they had frozen to death already. Mm -hmm. So it was just very strange. And those bodies were in, in much worse condition which we will get into so bizarre it's very weird so they begin an investigation as they um, should <laughs> yep because this is suspicious as hell 
a legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies. So a medical exam found no injuries that would have led to their deaths, and it was concluded that they'd all died of, like, hypothermia. One of them had a small crack in his skull, but it was not thought to be a fatal wound. But still, how does your skull get cracked? You don't just get tapped on the head. From what I read, a lot of them had kind of like, these first five, a lot of them had, like, superficial injuries. Like a, like a bruised lip or, you know, like cuts on their like hands and face. So it looked like they'd been through some kind of scuffle, but nothing that would have killed them. Mm. So an examination of the four bodies, which were found in May, shifted the narrative about the incident. Uh, three of the ski hikers had fatal injuries. One had a major skull damage uh, and two had major chest fractures. According to Dr. Boris Vosrezdeni, the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, comparing it to the force of a car crash. Oh, ow. Mm-hmm. Um, just your body having that kind of force, is that would be rough. Yep. Notably, the bodies had no external wounds related to the bone fractures, as if they had been subjected to a high level of pressure. However, major external injuries were found on uh, Lyudmila Domenina who is missing her tongue, eyes, parts of the lip, part of the lips, as well as facial tissue, and a fragment of skull bone. Um, She also had extensive skin maceration on the hands. It was claimed that Debanina was found lying face down in a small stream that ran under the snow, and that her external injuries were in line with putrefaction in a wet environment and were likely and were unlikely to be related to her death. Which is, it's still rough, but I watched, like, a handful of YouTube videos about this one, and there was one from some show on the History Channel, and just the way they covered them, all of this is super sketchy and weird, but the way that they delivered the facts, they were just like, everyone had terrible crush injuries, and her tongue and eyes were missing. The end. And I'm just like, well... I mean, it's it's gross, but unfortunately when you die in the wild, you know, animal predation is is kind of common, even when it's really cold like that, and especially with, with the water. Yeah, because that would mean that it was warm enough to, like, keep her... She's not frozen solid, essentially, in those places, I would yeah, imagine. Yeah, just that spot. From what they described it at, it was described it as there was a... I can't remember if they call it, like, a melt stream... Or something, but it's basically just, you know, some of the snow is melting, but it's underneath. Mm-hmm. So it's not like an official brook or river or anything like that. It's just kind of a... Melting ice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There was initial speculation that the indigenous Menzi people might have attacked and murdered the group for encroaching upon their lands, but investigation indicated that the nature of their deaths did not support this hypothesis, since the hikers' footprints alone were visible and they showed no sign of hand-to-hand struggle. Although the temperature was around negative 13 to negative 22 degrees Fahrenheit with a storm blowing, the dead were only partially dressed. Some of them only had one shoe, while others had no shoes or wore only socks. Some were found wrapped in snips of ripped clothing that seemed to have been cut from those who were already dead. Basically, so there's this big inquest, and journalists who reported on it kind of focused on a few parts of the main file when it came out. Because a lot of it was, wasn't so much, say, covered up, but a lot of it was kept classified until 
like the 90s or early 2000s or something like that. So they didn't really release all the information right at once. The main points that they focused on were that six members of the group died of hypothermia, three of fatal injuries, which were like the the skull and, and rib fractures and stuff like that. There was no indication of other people nearby on Colat Siakal, apart from the nine travelers. Uh, the tent had been ripped from inside. The victims had died six to eight hours after their last meal. Uh, traces from the camp showed that all members had left the campsite of their own accord on foot, so it didn't look like someone else had come in and like forced them off at gunpoint or anything like that. The release documents contained no information about the condition of the skier's internal organs, and there were no survivors of the incident. And so when it came out, it was kind of strange because the inquest basically summed it up by saying that the group members all died because of a compelling natural force, which is vague and doesn't tell me anything. Like, a compelling natural force. Like, do they mean natural and then, like, they froze to death? It's cold. It's the elements. It's just, it's weird. It's a weird way to describe it. They kind of just left it at that. By May of that same year, they kind of dropped it because... They were like, well, it's not foul play. Like, no one came in and killed them. You know, it was just a, a natural force, nothing to be done. And then they sent the files away to some secret archive, and they made the photocopies available in the 1990s, although some of it had been, like, redacted. Hmm. Yeah. That's suspicious. Yeah, they were like, it's not a whole lot. Like, almost all of it's been made available at this point. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. Okay. All right, all right. Uh-huh, all right. <laughs> So, and there's been, you know, a lot of speculation. I feel like at the time, I don't know exactly how popular it was. I'm sure their families really wanted to know what was going on. But just over time, the case has become very infamous. Because there's a lot of different theories, but there really, there isn't one theory that explains everything. Like, there's a lot of these theories that I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I could believe that, but then it doesn't explain some other element of it. Hmm. Even after all this time. Will we ever know? No. Probably not. Hard and fast? No. Probably not. Unless it happens again, and we can put a GoPro on them. I'd rather it not happen again, if we're being real. Well, me too. Send someone back in time. Not me. I don't no. want to go. <laughs> someone will. Theory number one. Attacked by a Manzi tribe. To dispel the theory of an attack by the indigenous Manzi people, Dr. Boris Vosrozdeny uh, stated that- favorite guy. Yep. He stated that the fatal injuries of the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows had been too strong and no soft tissue had been damaged. Uh, the absence of bullet wounds in the victims combined with the utter lack of footprints essentially rules out the Manzi- as potential suspects. Add to this the fact that the group's provisions were left untouched, and we can all but totally dismiss the circumstantial case against these Manzi hunters. As if that weren't enough evidence to exonerate these native Siberians, there is a conclusive proof that the Manzi assisted in the hunt for the missing skiers, regardless of how sound the Soviets' motivation may have been for covering up a Manzi attack, the evidence simply does not bear out this hypothesis. And, um, intriguingly, Manzi legend has it that the Kolat Siakal, uh, received its ominous name, Mountain of the Dead or Dead Mountain, after nine Manzi warriors mysteriously perished on the same peak years before. This has led some investigators to surmise that the region might be cursed or infested by ancient and malicious spirits, 
but for the most part, the mountain was not considered to be a particularly sacred region by the Mansi. I wanted more information on that, but I had a hard time finding any information on, like, because they said, like, several years before, and I was like, is this something that happened, like, hundreds of years before? Like, it's a legend? Or is this something that, like, you know, a decade before there'd been, like, a hunting party that had been killed or something? And the fact that it was nine people. Yeah, that's again. eerie. Mm-hmm. Makes you wonder if that guy had been there, if the ten, like, if that has anything to do with it, or if it still would have happened, or... Or if they would have sent him off and been like, tell him what we did. Yeah. We're ghosts. I just want to know. But I'm glad he lived. Oh, man, that must... I know, that must suck so much for him, though. Like, yeah. I hope he's made a good life for himself and he's he's been able to work through it, but that survivor's guilt would be rough. Yeah, I don't, I don't envy him on that. Mm-hmm. So, this theory... I'm pretty glad they dispelled it, because honestly, it kind of just seems like racism? Mm-hmm. Maybe? It's always yep. hard for me to call it when it's, like, in other countries, because I don't know how their, like, race dynamics work, but for the most part, it seemed like people were quick to be like, it's these guys, you know, they're, you know, kind of superstitious, and they probably attacked them for encroaching on their land, and they were like, dude, anyone can hike here, we don't care. I mean, I don't know if there's, like, actual differences racially or, or whatever, but it might also be classism or, I mean, like, a number of things that could possibly lead to them being like, well, they're not us, so they're they're obviously, like, gonna kill people. And it's like, I, no, that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. It's not how that works. Also, you, we all kill people, definitely. <laughs> like, people who are, like, in the quote-unquote civilized world get murdered all the time by quote-unquote other civilized people like all the damn you know? time so fuck you <laughs> <laughs> all right next one which at first i was like oh this makes sense and then no it doesn't but yeah. it's avalanche which on its face you know they're on a mountain it's bad weather it's snowing but they said that it was initially really popular and then people started to question it because the story in the avalanche theory was that, like, they woke up, and I don't know if they, like, heard a rumbling or they saw some kind of sign that an avalanche was imminent, and so they cut their way out of the tent because they were like, we can patch that later, we don't want to be buried under a ton of snow, and then just took off running. Um, at least the people that were sleeping in the tent, they were saying that there could have been people, I guess, who were already up and were dressed, and those were the ones who ended up, I guess, being killed so i don't know how that exactly works out but they said that the people who ran out of the tent probably got lost because it was dark and the visibility was poor and so once they got to the nearby woods which they would have gone to because it would have kind of helped to slow the oncoming snow they got separated from their group made a fire but maybe made the fire like without i guess gloves or whatever so they think that might be why their hands and stuff were messed up I mean, I think it's from climbing, but whatever. Um, And that the others then tried to return to the tent, but then froze before they got there. Okay, yeah, so that's what they think. They said at some point, uh, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead. Um, That at any rate, the group of four whose body were most severely damaged were the ones that were caught in the avalanche and got buried under like 13 feet of snow. Because they were under way more snow than everybody else. Everyone else was kind of just had like a light dusting on them. And they were like, well, this would explain you know, the the force of a car or whatever hitting them and damaging their, their insides. 
but this one they kind of dispelled because they said that the location of the incident didn't have any obvious signs of an avalanche having taken place. Like, the bodies were hurt, but there would have been, like, a pattern of debris distributed over a wider area. And if there was an avalanche that was strong enough to sweep away the four people that were killed that were all the way dressed, it would have been big enough to get everybody. So the fact that some of the bodies were just covered in a very shallow layer of snow didn't really fly. Um, They said there would have been more serious and different injuries in the process and that the tree line of the little forested area that they went to would have also been damaged. But other than a couple of branches being broken off where they, you know, supposedly climbed up, that was the only tree damage there was. Um, They said the area is not conducive to conditions that might create an avalanche. There have been a lot of, almost said endeavors, what do they call them, expeditions in this area since then. And there's not been another avalanche or anything like that since then, if there was ever one. A study of the area using up-to-date terrain-related physics revealed that the location was entirely unlikely for such an avalanche to have occurred. The slope, the incline, all of that indicates that it would have had to have been a very specific avalanche. And even if there had been one, its trajectory, like the way the land was laid out, it would have gone past the tent. So Mm. it wouldn't have even hit them. And they said if it had, that the tent was collapsed laterally, but not horizontally. So like the sides of it were kind of pushed in, but the main poles of it and everything were still up in the photos that I saw. Igor Dyatlov was an experienced skier and one of the other guys who was a older, I don't know if he was an engineer or if he was a student, like, going back to school. Um, but Alexander Zolotaryov was studying for his master ski certification stuff. And both of them were smart enough to not camp somewhere where there would be a potential avalanche. Which, people can make mistakes. So that one I can be like, well, no one ever is going to intentionally camp where they think there's going to be an avalanche. But... If you get stuck there because of bad weather or something and you can't move, what are you going to do? Yeah. But it's still a good point that they probably wouldn't have if they could help it. Hmm. So the next theory is very interesting. I was reading it while you were reading. Um, It's infrasound. So another hypothesis popularized by Donnie Eckhart's uh, 2013 book, Dead Mountain, is that wind going around holidays Chal Mountain created a Carmen Vortex Street, which can produce infrasound capable of inducing panic attacks in humans. According to Iker's theory, the infrasound generated by the wind as it passed over the top of the Holochotl Mountain was responsible for causing physical discomfort and mental distress in the hikers, driving them to leave the tent by whatever means necessary and fleeing down the slope. By the time they were further down the hill, they would have been out of the infrasound's path and would have regained their composure, but in the darkness would have been unable to return to their shelter. The traumatic injuries suffered by three of the victims were the result of their stumbling over the ledge of a ravine in the darkness and landing on the rocks at the bottom. A not pleasant way to die. No. Maybe after they got knocked out, they just froze to death real fast. Hopefully it was fast for everyone, because that's miserable. This one, I feel like, could be a whole episode in itself. Just infrasound in general. It's very interesting. It is. Well, I was looking it up because I was like, well, is this a specific one? Because it has the whole Carmen 
vortex street or whatever, but they use this to, like, they've done experiments where they expose people to these really low frequencies of the infrasound, and it does create, like, a weird feeling of, they would either describe it as awe or fear, which I feel like can be kind of interchangeable (laughs) sometimes, Mm -hmm. but... Yeah, they said that it, it definitely can have that effect. I don't know if it would be strong enough to make this many people react this way, just because they're like, different people react to it in different ways. Not everybody is going to do the exact same thing. It's definitely something that, even if it's unlikely, if it just happened in just the right way this one time, could really fuck you up. <laughs> well, that and I mean, if one of them starts really panicking and having this really like visceral reaction i can imagine that the other two would either follow them to try and like stop them or possibly get freaked out by how weird they're acting Uh, it's it's like i could see it being like a, a snowball effect where one or two people have a reaction and then the rest of them get freaked out especially since like they'd already gotten lost they're already like cold and probably tired they're only living on bread for some dumb reason um, <laughs> they, they had brought other stuff okay. they were just carbo loading and buying stuff they they okay. had bought a lot of things okay, okay. cashed some food around and stuff like that so i know my brain doesn't work that great <laughs> when i've only eaten bread but i just it's like i i feel like it's plausible just because even if it wasn't all of them reacted the exact same way, I imagine even if just a couple of them freaked out, it could cause the others to either panic or try to, like, damage control. It's an interesting theory, and it seems plausible. Part of me, I was wondering, I was like, maybe if the first ones that ran off, like, with no clothes on, took off, and by the time the other group realized what was happening, you know, got dressed and went to go look for them, and in the darkness... Maybe that's when, like, you know, they fell, and then the one girl who didn't fall and get hurt, the one who had, like, the the real bad, like, face-eating injuries or whatever, maybe she was, like, trying to find her way back, because she was near them, but she didn't have the same, like, internal injuries mm-hmm. as the other two. It makes sense. It's definitely plausible. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Uh, The next one on the list we've got is military tests, which this one also is one of mine that I think makes a lot of sense just looking back on that time period and the cold war and all that stuff it might sound like a bunch of conspiracy theory stuff but i think it could totally be real um they said that some people believe that it was a military accident that was covered up that they do have records of parachute mines being tested by the russian military or i guess the soviet union military um in the area around the time that the hikers were there because it's called Dyatlov Pass now, but at the time, the area that they were in, it had a Mansi name, but it was just like a mountain number. It wasn't, I think, a very popular place for people to hike since, you know, they kind of got turned around. And so I think it might have been an area where they were using it to test these parachute mines and they just were in the wrong spot at the wrong time. And the way these mines work are they detonate like a meter or two before they hit the ground and they can produce similar damage to what happened to uh, the hikers that had like heavy internal damage, but not a lot of external trauma, like not a lot of soft tissue damage. There was also 
reported by Mansi tribes, and they said other witnesses, which I couldn't find where they were from, but they said people did report seeing glowing orbs in the sky in that general vicinity, which could be other things like UFOs or something, but could also be these bombs that they were testing. And then part of this, the whole cover-up thing, is they think that the bodies were moved um, and that the photos of the tent that they've got on file show that it was erected incorrectly, like it's not set up right. And they were like, these were very experienced hikers. They would not have set up a tent this way. I don't know how to set up a tent. I like to go like cabin camping. (laughs) So I could not tell anything by looking at the photos, but you know, they could be right. And this theory in particular is kind of useful when you're speculating on experimental radiological weapons because um, some of the hikers' clothing and their bodies were described as having one, like a, a level of radioactivity on them that, I mean, I don't know how much would be considered a normal level. I would consider zero to be normal, but what do I know? But uh, their relatives, I guess, when they had to identify them, said that their skin was kind of orange and that their hair was gray, which could also just be from being out in the wilderness and like the normal kind of like mummification process. But the initial suppression of files, you know, obviously made people think that maybe the Soviet authorities were trying to cover something up. But they tried to explain it away by being like the concealment of information with regard to domestic incidents like this is pretty standard procedure in the USSR. So it's not that weird. Um, And then by like the 1980s and 1990s, they had started to release all of the DLL files in some manner. But again, I mean, 1990s or whatever, that's the end of the Cold War. So maybe they were like, okay, we'll just put this all out now. And there's also a photo that was on one of the hikers cameras that when they developed the last photo is like a weird blurry light looks kind of like not totally like an orb but just weird enough that if you wanted to believe that he was trying to take a photo in the dark of like a a mine or something like blowing up in the air above him why not mm-hmm. maybe it's that maybe it's a ufo <laughs> scary tell me about the ufos becca so next theory is ufos Lev Ivanov was in charge of the investigation at the Dyatlov Pass, and in the early 1990s, in an interview with local journalists, um, he made a statement that during his investigation, he and E.P. Maslenikov both noticed that the pines in the forest were burnt at the top. Uh, When E.P. Maslenikov and I examined the scene in May, we found that some young pine trees at the edge of the forest had burn marks, but those marks did not have a concentric form or some other pattern. There was no epicenter. This once again confirmed that heated beams of a strong but completely unknown, at least to us, energy were directing their firepower towards specific objects, in this case people, acting selectively. He also claims that A.P. Karolenko, member of the Soviet Congress, along with his advisor A.F. Ashtokin, uh, forced Ivanov to take out any reference to the unknown flying objects or other strange phenomena. This included pictures of flying spheres drawn by the Mansi hunters and other testimonies. Around the time of the interview, the Soviet Union was experiencing a boom of interest in everything unknown. Skeptics suggest that Ivanov gave this interview to make some money, and atheist Soviet Union obviously prohibited any interest in the subject, especially among members in the highest legislative body in the country. 
It is worth noting that later on, Karolinko, the Soviet congressman, professed a lively interest in the UFOs and received memos about sightings of unidentified objects from the chairman of the KGB, Andropov. But so, like, do they think they were killed by aliens then? Or do they think that they were, like, abducted and then... Like, brought back? I don't know. They don't explain it, which, that's why I'm kind of like, this is the weakest to me, and I, you know how I love to believe anything, but I just, I'm like, why would, no, if, if it was a UFO, I feel like they would all be dead in the exact same way. Like, it would be weirdly eerie that they'd all be damaged in the same way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I saw someone who was trying to say that their bodies were, like, similar to cattle mutilations and stuff like that that have been attributed to, like, UFO, alien abduction type things. But I didn't really see it. I thought it was interesting. Like, this guy believed in it so much that he apparently, like, would not sign off on the report and resigned. But he could have also just been really stubborn and really wanted to believe in that. And when they were like, no, it's really not that. Please put something real in here. These families don't want to hear that their kids were, you know, abducted by aliens. They want to know what happened to them. And he's like, it was aliens. Goodbye. I sold it. You're welcome. Bye. <laughs> Send me the check. <laughs> So I don't know. I'm sure he's a very nice guy, and if he really does believe in it, then he cannot help that. But I personally do not think that that's what it was. Yeah. And then this last little bit was just kind of a thing to explain the hypothermia, the whole, like, them being undressed, which I didn't understand why people were including this as, like, a theory, because it kind of ties into the other ones, but... Um, they were like, well, it was hypothermia, which can induce a behavior that's known as paradoxical undressing, which is when someone is hypothermic and they take off their clothes because they actually feel like they are just burning up. Like, they feel like they are so hot, they must get naked immediately. Undisputedly, six of the nine hikers died from hypothermia, but the other people in the group seemed like they had already taken clothes from the people who had passed away, so... They threw that in there on the wiki, and I was like, okay. I mean, I at this you. point, anything is possible. It's sort of like, I mean, I'm not saying it is this, but I'm also saying it's not not this. Well, this one, I mean, this one, it pretty much is. Like, it would oh. totally explain why they didn't have their clothes on. If they were hypothermic, they could have just taken their clothes off. I guess I also wondered, though, like, since... There was the mismatch or mishmash of like clothing on the other people. I just figured maybe they had stripped them down. They could have, yeah. But I mean, again, it could be a combination of a bunch of things. Well, it was that, or if they left in a hurry and some of them actually did get dressed, I thought they might have just grabbed whatever they could find. Yeah. And just, you know, if you get Jimmy's shoes and Martha's shirt, you're a Jimmy Martha masterpiece and you don't have to match. Finally. I'm a masterpiece. <laughs> but that's the Love Pass incident. It's sad and mysterious, and nobody knows what happened for serious. Um, there was a not great movie, I think it was called, like, The Devil's Pass or Devil Mountain or something like that that used to be on Netflix, and it leaned in pretty heavily to the idea that it was a uh, Russian government cover-up. I think there was, like, a 
some sort of explosion that makes an avalanche and a bunch of the people like they run into the mountain into a weird bunker and there's weird like monster sort of whatever going on and it was it was okay it was like a found footage movie that was just all right if you want to see it, it used to be on netflix if it's not there now You'll just have to miss out, I guess. I bet it's on YouTube if it's not very good. I feel like that's where everything that's not very good goes to die. Someone out there likes it, just not me. Or but probably you know what I, me. Probably you too. But you know what I do like? Hmm. I like the new graphic novel that just came out for The Adventure Zone. Oh, called... did you read it yet? I am almost done. I was trying to see if I could finish it before we recorded, but I've still got like two chapters left. But it's very good. It's called Here There Be Gerblins. And if you don't have the time to listen to a big podcast, I would say it's a very good introduction and the drawings are good. And it's a good adaptation. They change a couple things to kind of make it more in character since they were just starting off and figuring it out. But 10 out of 10 would recommend. I hope the next one comes out sooner than a year, but I can wait, I guess. I guess. Oh, man, if it took them like a year to do each one, that would be like nine or ten years. Mm. Oh, my God. Mm-mm. <laughs> Mm-mm. My, my uh, wreck for this week, I've been devouring the Raven Cycle series of uh, YA mm. books. And they're very, like, supernatural slash... It's about this girl who, like, basically makes the psychics around her stronger. Like, her mom's a psychic and her aunts and, like, cousins and stuff. And she meets these rich boys who go to this private school named, like, called Aglenby in the area. And they're trying to find this ancient Welsh king. And it's just really cool. Like, there's a lot of, like, tarot cards and romance. And it's... Is it one of those where, like... In the world, like, magic is acknowledged, like, it's not a secret thing, everybody knows about it? No, it's, not everybody knows about it, but, like, they're basically, their town is on this ley line that has a ton of power, and there are dreamers. It's just a really cool book, like, series, and it doesn't really read like YA to me. It's just very good. It's by uh, Maggie Steve Otter. If you're interested, the first book is called The Raven Boys. And it was a little harder to get through for me just because the first book in any series is always like a little bit of a slog because you're just meeting the characters. You're not attached yet. But I think if I reread it, I would be way more attached going Mm -hmm. back because we've been through so much at this point. But I just finished, or I'm, I'm about to finish the third book today, and then there's a fourth book, and then apparently, I think there's going to be a TV series that sci-fi is going to do, which I don't know how that's going to turn out, but fingers Damn. crossed. Is it going to be called Raven Boys, or is it... I would imagine Raven Cycle, but I don't know. I feel like they changed names, and I'm like, Raven Cycle's very good. It's very good. I'm looking it up. Raven Cycle. Apparently there's going to be a spinoff series about one of the boys named Ronan, who is my son and I love. It's just, it's it's good. It's like LGBT positive and it's, they all come from different backgrounds. Like, it's just, it's good. It's a solid, good, good series. A plus. From what I can tell, it looks like I think they're still just going to call it the Raven Cycle. So at least that'll be easy for people to spot it. I'm glad because it's very good. Like, I've enjoyed it very much. Mm, lots of good recommendations this week. So, so if you like our stuff, 
You can follow us on Twitter. We're at Ghost Emoji Show. You can email us. Our email is ghostemojipodcast at gmail.com. You can listen to us on iTunes. We are also on Google Play. Um, we're on Podbean. Leave us a five-star review. We love to hear from people, especially if you like it. Always mm-hmm. makes us feel good. And that way you can also see whenever new episodes popping up. We've got new episodes uh, every other Tuesday. And if you have any cool stories or questions or anything, send them in. I'll read them. Mm-hmm. I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Don't think I won't. We'll do it. <laughs> uh, I think that's going to do it for us this week. So until next time, always remember to say good. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.